Amen. Thank you, choir musicians, as you come make your way down. Or something else makes its way down. We'll get our Bibles out. Open to Colossians chapter 4, page 1355 in the pew Bible in front of you. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. Just grab that hardback black one there in front of you and open to 1355. You'll find the last chapter of the book of Colossians. It's been four months we've been studying through this letter that Paul wrote to primarily to the church at Colossae. He's led by a man named Epaphras that came to know Christ through Paul's ministry at Ephesus. Epaphras is from Colossae. He took the, uh, as, a, as a new believer who'd been trained under Paul, he took his zeal and his passion for God home to Colossae, planted a church, and uh, God began to do amazing things. And now Paul is uh, writing this letter back to them to encourage them in where they are. And so we have together uh, for four months studied through this book. Uh, verse by verse, piece by piece, and God has shown us so many wonderful and amazing things. And here's the, as we sort of come to the culmination of all this, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a dangerous tendency that, that we might have at the end of this study, and that would be to think of this book as this uh, sort of uh, unreachable, unattainable um, place in the Bible that uh, is, is great that these believers in Colossae uh, are being spoken to by Paul, but really for us to sit and read it, um, it's just beyond us in the circumstances and situations that we're in. It doesn't flow into the reality of our current circumstances and present day life. That would be a terrible mistake. It would be, the, it would be a mistake like coming in here this morning and thinking that uh, we're uh, this big group of people who have everything together, that we don't, uh, we don't have struggles or problems, that there's not doubts in this room, that there's not concerns in this room, that there's not real fears in this room, that there's not uh, all sorts of things going on. That on the outside, we can appear to be put together, but uh, the beauty of a fellowship like this is that we're just a group of normal people. We're just... Uh, we're just regular people that God has moved in our lives. And we come together every week, and we worship the God who is faithful to us. And we see his faithfulness taking place or playing out all around us every single week, whether it be in the times that we gather together or just through the course of the week as we are connected and fellowshipping with one another. And so this book has not been some high theological treatise that just, you know, kind of flows over our head. But this should be, this should be uh, seen in your heart as a place where you could sit in your uh, armchair at home with a cup of coffee and open to the book of Colossians and begin to read. And God would speak directly into your life and into your heart exactly where you are right now and give you wisdom and direction with regards to that. And so we're going to close this study by looking at this final passage, and we're going to see the context that all of this has happened in. 
So you think about in four months all of the incredible things that we have talked about and learned about and all the, the ways that God has uh, taught us things and opened up our eyes to uh, the reality of what he wants for us and who we are in Christ and just, oh my goodness, as I thought back on all of these uh, sermons and all of these just times and all of the all of the ways that God has moved in so many of your lives in such a tangible way as we've studied this book. Now we're going to see, now what is the context that all of this occurs in? Is it just Paul sitting there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, recording the words of God? Is that what this is? Or is this more like uh, us gathering in here this morning? A group of people with all our frailty and problems coming together and just being honest and trying to do the best we can with what God's given us and to press on and press forward together. Here's the context of the book of Colossians. Look, at, look with me in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And by the way, if you're pregnant this morning or uh, planning on being pregnant at some time in the near future, I'm about to give you a list of very uh, qualified names for your little one. And, uh, and here's the thing. Nobody else is going to have this name. So you're good. You just pick any of these I'm about to, and you'll be all alone, okay? So I'm helping you. Verse 7, Tychicus, how about it, huh? Can't you see? Dinner, Tychicus, dinner's ready. I like it. It's got a flow to it. A beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one who is one of you, that they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is also called Justice, those are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, he greets you always, laboring fervently in, in, for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in all and the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. And those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, who is at the, has the church in his house. Now when the, this epistle is read among you, See that, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing word that we have before us this morning. Thank you for how you've ministered to us through this book of Colossians, and we are grateful for its perfection, its inerrancy, and Lord, we know that it's been uh, good to us because it's from you and it's meant for us, and this morning we need you to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that we might be able to comprehend and, and Lord, take to heart those things which you'd say to us. So Father, we pray that now you will help us, Lord, through the power of your Spirit to receive what you have to say for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what becomes obvious. That really up until this point, it would appear that Paul is just 
uh, doing all of these things on his own. But then when he gets to the end, as he so often does, he does this in Philippians and Romans and various times throughout the New Testament, Paul will, at the end of his letter, he will uh, recognize all those who are his fellow servants, all those who are helping him and working alongside him. And so I want us to just draw our attention to a few of these people who fall into some categories so that you can see the way that ministry is accomplished is in the is in the cooperation, it's through the collaboration of the people of God as God brings people together who have various giftedness and various abilities to serve and to uh, work together to accomplish the will of God. First, we see uh, that God uses people who are available. People who are available. Tychicus is a man who is, he's mentioned four times in the New Testament. Each time it's a very short mention, but if you put all of those together, you get an idea of who this person was. He says in verse 7 that Tychicus is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Now his name means fortuitous. So in other words, he is a, a, a great blessing to others. His greatest ability is his availability. Because every time we run into him in the New Testament, he's helping and serving in some way. And so we know that he was entrusted by Paul to de deliver the letter of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. He also delivered the relief offering that was taken up by the churches in Asia for the church at Jerusalem. So that shows his great trustworthiness that all of that money that was taken up for the Jerusalem church was sent by Tychicus. We know that he was trustworthy. We know that he was dependable. Uh, he, he's a man that Paul could depend on. He was available to serve, to be a part of ministry. His ministry to Paul was to be Paul's helper, to be his blessing, which was a great source of encouragement for Paul. Notice what he says in, Paul says of him in verse 8. I am sending him to you for this purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Now, isn't it interesting that in the previous verse, Paul said that he's going to tell you all about me. So Paul's telling us that Tychicus knows all about Paul. And so then he says to the church at Colossae, well, he's going to come and tell you about me, but also he's going to know your circumstances and he's going to be a blessing to you. In other words, that what he was as an available servant of God was he would bring comfort into the hearts whom he ministered to because he was there. He was there and available to serve. That tells me some things about him. It tells me that he's a person who didn't have an agenda. What's such a great blessing in my life are the people that God brings into my life who are there to serve. They're just there to be available. Pastor, I'm available. Whatever you need, you can call me. If you need something, you call me, and I'm there to help you. You see, that's a blessing. It's, it's a blessing when people come to me and say, listen, I can do this or I can do that, so if you need this or you need that, call me and I can do it. But then I have to somehow categorize and file away all these different people that can do these different things. But when someone walks up and says, I'm available, I'm available. Whatever the church needs, I'm here. That's a great comfort to my heart. It's a great comfort to the people's hearts whom available people serve. I'm so thankful for the, the, the Tychicus-type people who are in this fellowship and what it means to us uh, as a fellowship to have you here and, 
and just your availability to be there to comfort to to be a comfort to somebody it means to to stand beside them and to share strength that you're you see you can't stand beside someone who's in need unless you're available you can't be in a hurry you have to you have to have time and so you can you know we we can sing uh that that never once has god left us alone and that can be maybe you can sing that from the truth of your own experience but corporately as we're singing that the only way you could know that to be the, the case, the only way that you could know the faithfulness of God would be that as you enter into this place, you see examples around us of the faithfulness of God, those pointers that are saying God is a faithful God, and you know that because you're connected to those things. You see, so for example, this morning when I see Shara Wigley walk in with no walker and no assistance, I know the faithfulness of God because I see her walking in and I see what a great, what, just what a, what a great faithful God we have that has enabled her. She has struggled so long to come to that place and you celebrate that, but if you don't know that, you don't celebrate that. If you don't, if you didn't follow the Griffin's journey over the last couple of weeks, then you don't, you would miss, you just think, well, there's a family but you wouldn't know the faithfulness of God and how God has worked through their life when you come in and you see them and you say, that's the faithfulness of God. When I look over here and I see Ann and Ray and I see Jojo with them, it tells me the faithfulness of God that Jojo's in church with them. That means so much to them. If you didn't know that and you just saw them come in, you just see, well, there's some grandparents with their grandson. And you would miss that. You see, the connection is where you see the faithfulness of God. And the point is, is that the more you are available, the more that you stand beside people and share strength with people, the more you connect it with people, the more you will know the faithfulness of God. This is the kind of person Tychicus was. Paul could not do his ministry without Tychicus. I could not do my ministry if I didn't have these kinds of people in my life because I don't know what I need tomorrow other than I need God and I need people to come beside me. I can't predict the needs of the next day or, or the next week or certainly the next month. That's the nature of ministry. You don't know what's coming. And so God puts in his church people who are available. There's certain things that these people understand. Available people understand that Christianity is far more about being a blessing than it is about receiving a blessing. You see, there's too many churches with too many people who think that Christianity is about believing a blessing. You see, if we believe that was true, this place wouldn't be the place that it is. We understand it's not about receiving a blessing. It's about being a blessing. The principle of it being better to give than to receive is true in every facet of the Christian life. And what happens is, is when people don't believe that, you see, that's just not true at Christmas time. That's just not true, you know, at some specific times in your life. That's true all the time in your relationship with God. And that it's always more, more beneficial to you to be a blessing than even to receive a blessing. People who don't know that, let me give you an illustration. 
Some of you in this room have uh, been through the, the fight of cancer. Some of us in this room are in the fight right now. Almost all of us love somebody or know somebody who is battling the word cancer in some way. And we've seen God do some amazing things. But have you ever thought about cancer? Have you ever thought about the fact that cancer is a cell that attracts other cells that refuses to cooperate with the body? Cancer is a place in your life that has its own agenda. It doesn't share the agenda of everything around it. People who think that Christianity is about what they can get from it are cancerous to the family of God because they're, they're, not, they're working in opposition to what God does. God doesn't work that way. God works through the cooperation of his people, and it's always been that way, and it will always be that way. So the first thing we see about Paul's ministry in the book of Colossians is that there are people who are available. Secondly, there are people who share the workload. Paul uses the term uh, fellow workers in verses 9 through 11. Now, when, when I talk about people who share the workload, and you look at this list beginning in verse 9 of these various people who are sharing the workload, there, again, tends to be this sort of misunderstanding that I'm not saying that I want to be a blessing in lieu of receiving a blessing. Because that's just as ignorant as thinking that the way God works is it's all about me receiving a blessing. Because anytime you are a blessing, a Christian knows you receive a blessing. But you, you, you're not, you don't pursue being a blessing just to receive a blessing. You just pursue being a blessing because that's what God would have you to do. Let me show you this in Scripture. For example, there's a, a beautiful place in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, where the Scripture says, He who waters will also be watered himself. You know what happens when you pour water on this? I've got a plant in my office that, let's just say, confirms the reality that I don't have a green thumb. This is supposed to be the most indestructible plant. Basically, it's one tiny biological step ahead of a plastic fake one. It's just literally. It's so close to being plastic, if you looked at it, you'd think, is that real? Not because it's beautiful, but because it's kind of... You know, and uh, Stacy, my secretary, she has one, and the thing like, looks like uh, it's grown all around the office. The thing, it looks like little shop of horrors in there. It's things just growing everywhere. Mine's one little sprig. Now, why are you laughing? Maybe I just planted it four years ago. Four years, one sprig. I mean, I've tried it, I, I, but when I, it gets a little droopy and wilty, and I put some water on it, and it peps it up. Sometimes I put some Diet Coke on it to give it a little zip, you know what I mean? I just think, well, I like it. Maybe he'll like it. You know, they, it's supposed to help a plant when you talk to it. It makes me feel weird, but I try it anyway. I'm game. Sometimes the plant is a better listener than anybody else I know, so I talk to the plant. See, the thing about the plant is the plant never has problems. So I, it just, he, the plant listens to me and never says, well, let me tell you what's going on in my life, Pastor. So see, it's kind of a good relationship we have. 
But apparently I'm killing the plant because it just doesn't seem to grow. But you see, when you put water on something, you refresh it, you nourish it, you energize it. And so the Bible says that when you, when he who waters, he who refreshes is himself refreshed. That there's this reciprocal nature to sharing the workload, to being a blessing, to being a part of the cooperative nature of the kingdom of God. So Paul calls these men fellow workers. Fellow workers. You know, there's a lot of people that are like a blister. They don't show up until the work's done. As soon as the work's done, then here they are. Oh, it looks really good. I'm thinking, "Mm mm-hmm. Where were you 30 minutes ago as I'm wiping all the sweat off my head? You see, the kingdom of God needs fellow workers. Workers. Look at verse 9. He points out Onesimus. Now, those of you that know the New Testament know that name because, uh, let's face it, how many people's name is Onesimus? But the book of Philemon is really about his story. His name means useful. But when we're first introduced to Onesimus, he's not a very useful person. He only becomes useful in his interaction with Paul. Paul meets him. Onesimus is a runaway slave. Onesimus comes in contact with Paul, gets saved, becomes a believer, tells Paul, listen, here's the problem. I mean, now that I'm a Christian, I'm I'm a slave, and I've run away from my my master, Philemon. And Paul says, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go back. You're going to go right back to Philemon. And I'm going to send a letter with you because Philemon is a brother, and I'm going to send a letter with you. And so in the book of Philemon, in chapter, in uh, verse 15, the Bible says, for perhaps, Paul says, he departed for a while for this purpose. He's talking about him becoming a believer, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me now, and much more to you. See, Paul is saying this Onesimus is a blessing. This, a, this guy has been beside me, and he's been serving. He's a fellow worker. He's somebody who, who helps hold up the burden and the strain of, of ministry. And Paul, is, Paul wants us to know that this man is useful in the kingdom of God because he's a worker. Verse 10, we see Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner, that he greets you. Now, We know a little bit about this man. We know that he was with Paul in the riot in Ephesus. The thing about Aristarchus is is that whenever he turns up, he's always around Paul when everything just breaks loose. When, When great chaos and trouble comes into Paul's life, somehow Aristarchus seems to be there. When there was the big riot in Ephesus, Aristarchus was there. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, Aristarchus was there. Uh, He was with Paul the first time Paul was imprisoned in Rome, in his first Roman imprisonment. Aristarchus was there. He was the definition of a fellow worker. Because think about it, as Paul is in the midst of being imprisoned or in uh, in these riots where he has to hide out for fear of his own life, He needs somebody who's going to accomplish the things that need to be accomplished that he can't physically do. And so Aristarchus is there to say, brother, I'll be your worker. And then comes verse 10. You see later on in verse 10, you see Barnabas. That's a familiar name. Most of you know that his name means son of encouragement. Now, really, he's mentioned here. We know tons about Barnabas from the book of Acts. The reason he's mentioned here is because he's, uh, because of John Mark, his nephew. Now, 
John Mark is mentioned specifically because John Mark and Paul had a problem in the past. That John Mark was accompanying Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, and he deserted them. And Paul didn't take very kindly to the fact that on their first missionary journey, he went AWOL. And so when it came time for the second missionary journey, you remember the story that Paul looked at John Mark and said, you're not coming with me. You're not coming. Paul was a tough man's man. And he said, you're not coming with me. I can't take you. I need people I can count on. I need people I can depend on. There's so many times in ministry where there are, there are places where we just need all hands on deck. We just got a big project and we need everybody to come on board and just pitch in and get it done. And those are amazing times. I can think of a million of them around here. I can think of, I can think of uh, two years ago when the leaders of the uh, Navajo mission were uh, about to panic. I'm not going to call anybody's name Chuck Lopez, but it was about to panic <laughs> because they had this mountain of clothes out there. And he's calling me up. But pastor, we got to get, I mean, these clothes, are, they're musty and they're dirty and we can't go out there and bring, you know, and I'm going to, you know, and he's picturing himself in the washateria with like 75,000 quarters for, you know, 250 hours trying to wash all these clothes. And then we even had a church member say, well, I own a laundromat. You can do it in my laundromat for free. And so I called him up. I said, you do it in the laundromat for free. He said, Thanks. So I said, all right, I tell you what, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. So the next Sunday, I said, you get them all boxed up into boxes and sizes we can manage and pull them out in front of the East Sanctuary on a trailer. So the next Sunday, I stood up and said, okay, folks, this is what we got to do. We got to get these clothes washed. Now, I remember when I told them what I was going to do, and even some people, Pastor Rod, thought I'd lost my mind. Like, there's no way you're going to get all those clothes washed. And so I said, here's what we're going to do. I need everybody to take a box of clothes home. So that Sunday night, well, at, well, as soon as Sunday school was over, all the cars were lined up getting the boxes. By the time I made it over there, I noticed that the trailer was empty, and I said, uh-huh. He of little faith. And uh, Sunday night rolls around, and I had three or four people come to me and go, Pastor, is there any more? I didn't get a box. And I said, well, I got some in my house. I'll bring you some of my laundry. <laughs> Lisa's got a bunch of boxes. We'll bring it to you. But I'm saying that we need people who are all hands on deck. But then there are times when we need people that we know we can count on, that these are specific, these are, there's, there's needs that you just can't put anybody in that position. You just can't entrust something so sensitive to anybody. And you see, Paul was going on his missionary journey, and he said, I mean, here's the thing. I'm just going to be honest with you. When I go traipsing through the jungles of Brazil, I'm not taking anybody I'm not comfortable with. I'm just not doing it. There's too much on the line. It's, too, it's just too important. It's too dangerous. It's just too everything. You see, but, but 
but people you can count on, you can go anywhere with. You can go anywhere, do anything with. And Paul looks at John Mark and says, I'm not taking you with. Now, th there's this moment where this person, John Mark, is about to be destroyed. And Barnabas says, I'll take him with me. And they go their separate ways. And the son of encouragement ministers into John Mark's life and, and rebuilds him, so much so that now in Colossians, in verse 10, he says, about whom you've received instructions. See, Paul sent special instructions about John Mark, and he said, and if he comes to you, welcome him. We know this because the last letter Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy, at the very end of his ministry, he is imprisoned, he knows this is the end, and he's about to die, and he asks for two things. He says, bring me my books. See, that's what I'm going to tell you on my deathbed. I want my books. Bring my books to me. He says, bring me my books and send me John Mark, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Or send me uh, John Mark. Now, he, uh, he, was, he was a fellow worker. He was somebody who helped get things done. All of these men are mentioned here because they were workers, because they were people who helped get ministry accomplished. And Paul says about them, in verse 11, they were a great comfort to me. You see, they comforted his soul. You know, it's a great comfort to know that things are going to get done, that you don't have to oversee everything, that you don't have to do everything, but that there's people who are vested in the progress of the community in which God has placed us in to where things are going to get done. And it's a great comfort. And Paul's saying, all of these men that I name are a great comfort because I have people who are available to me. I have people who share the workload. And then thirdly, people who stand in the battle. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, this young minister of the gospel in Colossae, who is one of you, he's a bondservant of Christ, greets you. Look at what he says about him. He's always laboring fervently. For you in prayer. See, you ladies that are going to do a ladies' Bible study, this is, this is your text right here. You're going to learn about fervent prayer. No church can glorify God without Epaphrasis somewhere. No pastor can preach the gospel faithfully without Epaphrasis. No fellowship is going to be able to reach their community, much less the world, without Epaphrasus, who labor fervently in prayer. And he says that you may stand perfect, complete in all the will of God, exactly what Paul has taught us about ourselves in the book of Colossians. But you know what Epaphrasus is? He, he is a man who is in the battle. See, at the end of the day, if you don't pray for me, you're not in the battle with me. You're just not. No matter what else you do, if you don't pray for me, you're not in the battle with me. Because the battle that I fight is only won through prayer. The battle that I fight every day cannot be won in any other way. I don't fight a battle that's based on my ingenuity or my uh, abilities or, or any other thing other than the fact that I know every day that the battle I fight can only be won on my knees. And I need people who are on their knees praying for me. This fellowship is filled with people who need you in the battle for them, praying for them. 
that every person in a valley needs someone in the battle with them. Notice what Paul tells us in one verse about prayer. He says that Epaphras prays continuously. You see what he says? He says he greets you always laboring. He prays continuously. He prays fervently, fervently in your prayers. He prays personally. Notice what he says. He, he labors fervently in, for you in prayers that you. So every time it says you, you know that Epaphras is not just praying these generalized prayers, but he's praying specifically personally for you. Paul is pointing this out to us, the importance of people who pray specifically for you. And then he, he prays personally and he prays sacrificially, that he prays that you would stand perfect, that there's a, 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 there's a specific nature to the prayer of Epaphras, that Epaphras knows that the the people whom he's praying for, they need to grow in their knowledge and their relationship with Christ. They need to know that they're complete in him. And so he prays that they would know that, that they would stand complete and that they would be in the will of God. It's interesting to me that the name of Epaphras, it means lovely. That makes me smile because I think about all the Epaphrases that are in this room right now and you make me smile. There's so many times where I know that you're praying for me and I know that you're praying for your pastors and I know that you're lifting us up and we sense that and feel that and we're so grateful for you and I want you to know how lovely you are to us. See, Epaphras was engaged in the battle because he understood the battle. Maybe you'll become an Epaphras after this morning because... You just didn't realize the nature of the battle. The Bible says about the battle in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts and wickedness in the heavenly places. See, I, I tell the staff all the time, our, our enemy is never people. It's never people. My enemy is never what I can see with my eyes. My enemy is what I can't see. That's what the battle is. Sometimes the, the enemy is using people that I can see, but it's not them. It's the one who's behind them. And so what you see is that all of this is being accomplished in the context of cooperation. That Paul, there'd be no ministry. There'd be no book to the Colossians. Everything that we've learned, we wouldn't know. Had it not been for all of these people working together to accomplish the ministry. Now, here's the question that I would ask if I were you. I'd say, does Paul seem like a person who needed encouragement? Does he seem like somebody who was weak or in need? I mean, here we have the most successful Christian who ever lived. No one has ever accomplished more for the kingdom of God than the Apostle Paul. And I think sometimes the mistake that we make here is we think, well, I don't know. I mean, man, I sit there and I listen to Pastor Tony and I think, man, this guy has got it all together. So he doesn't, he doesn't need me to pray for him. He doesn't. You see, you, you're insane if you think that. 
Here's the Apostle Paul. The strongest, the most confident, the most spiritual person you could ever meet other than the Lord Jesus face to face would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, the Bible tells us over and over. Paul tells us, and then sometimes other people tell us. Like, for example, uh, Dr. Luke tells us in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 28, that when Paul, remember when he was arrested in Jerusalem? I mean, he was having a tough time. And then they put him on a ship to Rome, and he's going on the ship to Rome, and then he gets shipwrecked, and then when he's stuck on Malta, he gets bit by a snake, and then the people of Malta start acting like a bunch of freakazoids, and then that goes crazy. And so everything's, I mean, he's trying to get to Rome, and it's just terrible. And as he's approaching Rome... In Acts 28, the Bible says three men traveled 43 miles to greet Paul. In other words, as he's going to Rome, after everything he's been through, they were so uh, excited about Paul coming that they traveled 43 miles by foot to get there to meet Paul just to say, brother, we're here to walk these last 43 miles with you. And the Bible says in verse 15, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. That blows my mind. Paul, I mean, he is the definition of courage. And yet, three guys, they didn't look at him and say, well, I mean, you know, Paul doesn't need anything. They traveled 43 miles to meet him. What about Jesus? Why did Jesus, why did he even bother with disciples in the first place? What was the point of these 12 men? All they did was annoy him most of the time. They never understood anything he was teaching them, right? He, he, it was the most ragtag bunch of people you could ever assemble for any purpose. And really, what was their function? Jesus did all the work. He performed all the miracles. He told all the parables. He did the teaching, Right? He, everything they did, he told them exactly what to do. Did you ever just say, man, you know, life would have been a whole lot easier if you just streamlined this operation and get, all, get rid of all that dead weight. But you see, Jesus didn't do that. He couldn't do that. Why? Ask yourself this question. Why? Why was Jesus so patient with them and long-suffering with them? They said things to Jesus that were so offensive so insensitive, so glaringly uh, making obvious their lack of understanding of what Jesus is doing, and yet he loved them. Why? Why? You know, we, we think about, well, Jesus is God. I mean, he doesn't need anything. He's God. Well, that's true. He has everything he needs, which is why he had people around him, because Jesus needs people to love. He needs people to love. Because at his core, the Bible says Jesus is love. And here's what I know about love. I'm not a brainiac, but I know this. Love is worthless if there's no object of it. Love that's been unapplied is useless, worthless. What good is love that's not applied to someone? What good is love that's not received? What good is love that's not uh, uh, expressed? 
Jesus is love. So he is a God who has existed for all eternity in the context of love and community as a triune God. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit have always been together. Always been in perfect community. Always loved each other. And when Jesus comes to earth and is, is God in the flesh, what is he going to do? He's going to do what God does. He's going to love people. He's not going to love people because they're easy. He's not going to love people because they get it all the time. He's not going to love people because it's convenient. He's going to love people because that's what God does. You see, you, you should be thankful this morning that Jesus didn't hold auditions, that he didn't choose the 12 most uh, deserving, most skilled, most educated, most uh, deserving people on earth. Because if that were the way the kingdom of God worked, what would it mean for most of us in this room? But you see, he comes and he takes the, the rejects and the ragtags and he gathers them around him because he's a God of love and he exists in community. And when he's on earth, he's describing to us, he's showing us, he's illustrating to us the way he is. I mean, he says, love others the way I loved you. He says, people will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. He's telling us that this love that we share for one another, this love of community is what makes us Christians. If you think about it, in all eternity, Jesus has never been alone except one time. The Bible says that when he hung on the cross and those whom he loved had deserted him, there comes a moment just before he takes his last breath and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth quakes and the sky darkens and the veil rips from the top to the bottom do you know that's the only time in Scripture that God didn't call, that Jesus didn't call God Father? That's the only time. That's the only moment that he's ever been separated from loving community was the moment that he took our sin and bore it on the cross. You don't think cooperation is important to him? If me and you or as the Bible says, created in the image of God, then what does that tell us about the essence of who we are this morning? We must be, we have to be made. We have to be made for community. We have to be created to love. That being alone can never be God's plan or purpose for any extended amount of time. That's not it. Because that's not what he did. See, think about this. There's so many ways this is illustrated that I think we miss because of the familiarity of stories. But what about when Jesus is uh, transfigured on the mount? And so he, he grabs his disciples, Peter, James, and John. In Luke chapter 9, he takes them up on top of the mountain. And there... God is transfigured into all of his Shekinah glory. And he's there with Moses and Elijah. And so you got the three disciples there. You know, he didn't go up there by himself. He takes three of them with him. He leaves the rest of them down there to minister to people. He's up there with them. Now, 
the three disciples see God in all of his glory, at least to the ability that they can. And then Peter, which we often make fun of him, says, uh, God, should I make some tents and we can just stay here? But really, that's a good thing to say. That makes sense to me. In other words, he sees God in all of his glory and he's like, why would we leave here? Here's the place to stay. Let's make some tents and just hunker down. And Jesus does something interesting. He comes back down the mountain. He brings them with him. And the first thing that happens is they go straight down the mountain and encounter a father who's in a terrible mess with a demon-possessed son. And the disciples are trying to minister to him. So what does that tell us? That tells us that time alone with God is great, but time alone in the presence of God always drives us back to the service of others. That, that they're, they're with God. Every time Jesus goes alone to be with the Father, he turns right around and goes straight to what? Ministering and serving others. Isn't it interesting that whenever you, whenever you, this is how you know if you've had an encounter with the real God of the universe. That if you and God have an encounter, the result of that encounter is going to be a desire in your heart to serve people because that's what happened every time in the Bible someone has an encounter with God, including Jesus, to show us that, listen, solitude with God is good for a time, but we are not designed or made in the image of a God that is to work unilaterally or in solo on our own as a lone ranger. That's not how it works. But oftentimes we see that, don't we? We see people who are on the periphery of the family of God, but who, who want to exist on their own. And here's my warning for you this morning, because the Bible will teach us about this as well. When you get to the end of the Gospels, in Luke chapter 22, where we have recorded for us the, the Last Supper, where Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples at the end of his ministry. Have you ever noticed the nuances there with regards to Judas? Have you ever paid attention to the wording of Scripture? That when Jesus identifies Judas as his betrayer, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the very instant that Satan entered Judas. Now understand, they're sitting around a table together eating a meal in community. And the Bible says the instant Satan entered Judas, he went out alone. Do you know what Satan wants to do to you? He wants to get you alone. He wants to get you separated. He wants to move you out of the comfort and care and love of other people. That's what he wants to do. He wants to discourage you. He knows that you are most vulnerable to his lies when you're by yourself. You weren't made to be by yourself. Some of you believe this lie that the fact that you like being alone is, uh, shows some uh, degree of maturity in you or some level of uh, spirituality to where you don't need other people to pick you up. Well, 
I hate to break it to you, but you're deceived. You're created in the image of a triune God that has always existed in community. And you are created, the Bible says in the very beginning in the book of Genesis that it's not good for man to be alone. And that, that goes for every man, every woman, every child, everyone. It's not good to be alone. And so if you're alone, so you're sitting there thinking, well, that's great, Pastor, because I'm alone all the time. Well, you know what? You need to do something about that. You need to let people know that you're alone. And you need to find people to engage with. You need to be proactive about it because you don't need to be alone because that's not how God created you. But we do know how he did create you. We do know the purposes that he does have for you because he tells us. He says, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You see that when you came, became a Christian, the day that your sin was forgiven, you were free. But only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's your mission statement. There's your command. In other words, what if you're a Christian and you're saying this morning, I feel alone all the time. Well, then what is wrong with this picture? You're, you're out of the will of God. You're missing the purpose. The purpose for you is you're supposed to be serving other people in love. It is incumbent upon you as a believer to find someone to serve in love. There's your calling in Galatians 5 verse 13 right there. Now, if you're unable... If you're unable to serve others in love, if you're bedridden, if you're, if you're to the point of sickness to where you can't, then you have got to rally people around you and let it be known that you are alone and that you need people there with you. See, salvation makes you free. Isn't that good? Don't we love that? But what does it make us free to do? Serve people. That's what we're free to do. We've been made free to serve others, to be a blessing to people. A Christian who doesn't serve is a walking contradiction. It doesn't square with the Bible. Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should, what's the word? Serve in newness of the Spirit and not an oldness of the letter. You see that? That's what serving in love is. It's serving in liberty. You see, because if you, don't, if, if you serve by compulsion, you're not serving in liberty. You're, you're, you're serving in bondage. You're serving because you have to. But we're to serve in love, in newness of the Spirit. You know what? It would be helpful for you to just realize this morning because it doesn't really matter how old you are or how long you've been a Christian or how much you understand about all of this in the context of this journey. All of us need to understand this morning that maybe the, maybe the, the problems that you're sort of struggling with in your Christian journey all boil down to this one point. You see, a saint that doesn't serve can never be satisfied. Never. The only way that you can find satisfaction in your relationship with Jesus Christ is through serving, which would explain why I meet people all the time in all the various places that I go 
that say, well, I'm a Christian, but, and it's just the, you know, and I just think like, you ain't the kind of Christian I am. I mean, it's almost like it's a bummer. It's just like, well, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I used to go to church, or I don't know. It's just, you know, you talk to them about things that's going on in their life or what they're doing. Well, no, you know. And here's the thing. You know what? All of their effort and energy is spent looking around at all these other people that aren't serving them, aren't doing the things that they think they ought to be doing. And at the end of the day, the bottom line is a saint who doesn't serve can never be satisfied. You'll never find satisfaction in Jesus if you don't serve because you're not experiencing the Jesus of the Bible. You're walking in the imagination of some God that you've made up. You may be saved. You may not be saved. I don't know. But I do know this, that apart from service, there'll never be satisfaction. There can't be. Because you're neglecting your very calling in Christ. But where is God this morning in all of this? What do we see at the end of the book of Colossians? We see the context of how all of these principles have come to play through the ministry of many available people and fellow workers and people who are in the battle. See, that's how great things are done. That's how, that's how the kingdom is advanced. It's a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of different gifts all coming together to rally in one accord for a common goal that only God could do. I'm not really interested in pursuing things that I can do. I'm not interested in pursuing things that we can do. I'm interested in us pursuing things that only God can do. Because that's what makes that's what makes being a Christian, that's what makes having a relationship with God so vibrant. And the thing about it is, is you don't have to wonder this morning where God is. Because the Bible tells you. Tells us where God is, where you can find God right now. Any moment of any day, if you want to find the the ever-present, tangible presence of God, the Bible tells you where to look. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. That's where God always is. I get to hang out with God all the time. Not in my office with all my books and all my Bible commentaries. and I get to hang out with him there too. But where I really get to hang out with the tangible presence of God is next to folks with a broken heart. Because that's where God is. God is ministering by the side of a family that's weeping because their loved one is passing away. And they're just hurting. God is next to the person who just found out that they have cancer. That's where God is. God is, is in the midst of the family that feels like uh, 
economically, they're about to just completely sink. That's where God is. God is right up next to the person who all they could do today was drag themselves up out of bed and just point their car in the direction of church because they've been in such a dark place and so down and depressed. God's right there in the car with you. He's sitting in the pew with you when your heart's broken. And if you want to hang out with God, you just snuggle up to somebody who's got a broken heart. That's where God is. I get to see God all over the world because he's with brokenhearted people who don't know how they got here. They don't know how the gospel, they never heard the gospel. They don't know how things, they look around them and they see a world that, that is unexplainable in their context. And they wonder, someday is anybody going to come and tell us about how all this happened? Man, I walk into that place and God's right there. You, you ever... You ever talk to, watch that video in the hallway? You ever see the faces of our Moldova team? Look at their face. Look at their face when they're with those orphans. Every time I see that video, I just stand there and I go, that's where God is. I get to see those faces every single Sunday. But their faces never look like they look in that video. They're, it's like they're with Jesus transfigured on the mount. There they are in the because God's there. Because God's with the orphan. He's with the widow. He's with the downtrodden. He's with the, the alone, the separated, the destitute, the desperate. That's where he is. And that's where we got to go. But the only way we can get there is we all have to go together. Because that's the way the kingdom of God works. There's no lone rangers. We all do this together. And so that's the whole point of everything that we do together. We exist as a body of people with all of these different amazing gifts and abilities all brought together to accomplish what could never be done apart from him. Never. So... We'll send a hundred and something missionaries all over the world this coming year. And all of us together will pay a portion of every single trip. And the way we'll do that is by what we've committed to I send. And it's not because you've always been faithful. So many of you have always been faithful and, and you, you have been faithful workers in that. And you've enabled that to go. And, and, and many of you have gone and many of you are just senders. But, it's, but you're all part of it. It's all equally valuable and important. Some of you in this room have been giving faithfully every month to ISEND since we first started it four years ago. And so what I'm asking you to do is to, I know you're committed to it, but the only way we can budget is if you take out that card and write down your commitment for 2016. Don't, don't say, well, I'm already given to that. I don't need to fill that out. No, we need to know that because that's the only way we can figure out how much we're going to be able to give to every missionary that goes. So it's very important information. 
But it's not just that. It's, it's everything. There are just certain things that, you know, there's certain things that just encourage your heart. I mean, maybe it's your grandkids or uh, maybe it's your Sunday school class. I mean, it could be a lot of things. There's certain things that encourage my heart too. And when people recognize the supernatural things that happen in this place from the outside, it really blesses my heart. Because I love to hear, I love, I love, I love for you to get bragged on. I love it when churches call and say, hey, we heard about you. We're, we're in Arkansas or Missouri or California. Now tell us, how, how do y'all send people all over the world? I mean, they're shocked when they find out that we're not a church of 5,000. Like, no. We're still rocking along in one service. Friday, Lisa and I went to Jackson, met with the state leaders of the Department of Human Services, and the governor of the state of Mississippi told Dr. Chandler, he said, the only way we're going to get out of the crisis we have in orphan care in the state of Mississippi is you're going to have to engage the churches. Thank God we have a governor that sees that. So we went up there and met with him, and they said, we want to use Michael Memorial as the prototype for how to resolve the foster care problem across the state of Mississippi. So we're going to take the two ladies that are overseeing what we're doing here with Rescue 100, and we're going to put them on a committee with some other people, and we're going to revamp the whole process. We're going to take your recommendations, and then we're going to get personally involved in the 50-some-odd families that you've raised up to be foster parents, and we're going to, we know that it's hard, and we know that you've been frustrated, but we're going to try to do everything we can according to the law to get involved. And then when, we're, when we see this through to the end, we're going to try to repli replicate this in other places. I'm just driving back from Jackson thinking to myself, you see, only God can do that. And so already we're starting to see families pour in here on Sunday mornings with foster kids. You think they can do that alone? You think they need people like Tychicus who are available? You think they need fellow workers who will come beside them? You think they need Epaphrasis? Pray fervently for them. As they're having to live out the gospel in the most difficult context, but there's no more beautiful picture to God. You know where God is? He's with the orphan. That's where he is. 
And when an orphan comes in your house, God comes in your house. I just want you to know I love you, and you are a tremendous people. But we're in this together. And so if you're, if you're sitting there on another Sunday morning and you're just looking up, listening to me, and you're not connected, I don't mean just a member. I don't mean just going to Sunday school. I mean connected. Serving. Find a place to serve. That's how we've gotten where we are, and that's how we're going to get to where God wants us to go together. Together. He's a good, good father, isn't he? He is. Let's stand and bow our heads.